Good afternoon. Welcome to the University of Sydney and to this new exciting Sydney Ideas Lecture. My name is Chiara Neto. I work at the School of Chemistry as an Associate Professor and I'm very happy to see such a full room today and especially happy to welcome uh, students from the Maris College in Eastwood here, year 7 to year 10. Welcome. We hope you enjoy the lecture. It's uh, my great pleasure to introduce Professor Federico Rosé, who's come all the way from Canada, especially to give uh, his lecture. Um, this lecture here today is part of his Selby tour, um, of which we are very uh, grateful to the Australian Academy of Science for. As part of this tour, he'll be traveling across Australia, visiting Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, Perth, and many more places to introduce large audiences such as this to the exciting prospects of nanoscience and nanotechnology. Professor Federico Rosé is chair um, in nanostructured organic and organic materials since 2003, but more recently he's also been nominated UNESCO chair in materials and technology for energy conversion, savings and storage. He's director of the INRS, uh, graduate Research School, part of the University of Quebec, and he's well known for his work on nanostructured materials, organic and inorganic materials, and today he'll try and give us a sample of the type of amazing feats that can be achieved with these materials. Um, I should let you all know that the lecture is being recorded, um, so Obviously, the, uh, the content of the lecture is recorded, and also the questions at the end will be recorded. So if you do have questions at the end, we welcome them, but please wait for the microphone before you speak up so that your voice can also be recorded. Please join me in thanking Professor Federico Rosé for his lecture. All right. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for being here. And uh, thank you, Chiara, for the introduction, and thank you to the uh, Australian Academy of Sciences for this uh, Selby Fellowship that has me tour your beautiful country when it's uh, summer here and it's still winter in Canada. I, I go by uh, those dates that are called uh, solstice and equinox, so according to those dates, it's still summer. I'm pulling your leg since I hear that March 1st apparently is autumn, start of autumn here. Anyway, um, so <clears throat> let's start. There are three grand challenges in modern society, and these are challenges that affect all of us, uh, regardless of whether we are fortunate enough to live in a developed, rich country like Australia or Canada in my case, or if you live in a developing country that does not have as many resources and infrastructure as we do. And these challenges are improving health and quality of life, preserving and protecting the environment, and clean and sustainable energy. If I had to pick one of the three, though, I would claim that energy, renewable energies, clean energies, are humanity's greatest challenge in the current 21st century. And that's because those three challenges are actually interrelated. The choices we have made 
in the type of energy we use, mostly fossil fuels for the past 200 plus years, have actually had catastrophic consequences on the environment leading to climate change, extreme weather events, pretty much global warming, acidification, desertification, and so on. And believe it or not, we are part of the ecosystem. So when we damage the environment, that will have eventually consequences on human health. And we know this because all the pollution in the atmosphere actually has harmful consequences for us humans. Okay? Now before continuing, I want you to appreciate uh, this uh, sort of picture here 1970 picture of an American family, a typical family, surrounded by the barrels of oil they consumed in just one year. And close to 50 years later, the consumption has increased by 40%. The world's growing thirst for oil amounts to 1,000 barrels per second. However, as much as we do have some solutions that we're working on using nanotechnology approaches, as Chiara mentioned, my aim here is to promote awareness. Some of you may already know how bad the situation is. I would wager most of you actually don't yet. I hope you will walk out of this lecture today with more information and sort of more, a better understanding of the kind of huge challenge that lies ahead uh, for us to actually preserve and protect our planet from the damage we have been doing to it. And in fact, Part of the, the big challenge is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. We know we need to replace fossil fuels, but there is no credible replacement. There's no silver bullet right now. There's many different technologies that can be adopted, that can help, that can transition, but there is no ideal solution that we say, okay, let's do this, and it's easy. It doesn't work that way. We know that fossil fuels will eventually be depleted, and to that end, we should save energy so that we can buy time while we transition to new paradigms and new technologies. We don't even know how much time we have. That's part of the problem as well. And also the price of oil, which right now is actually very low, but it correlates with everything we do when we extract raw materials, when we process them, uh, price of food, uh, real estate, whatever. It correlates with everything. So if we want to transition to a new type of energy paradigm, then we will have to invest energy. But we're already in a situation of energy debt. And so that's, again, part of the challenge. I've mentioned the catastrophic consequences on, on the environment. And then, finally, there is this issue here, which is so-called so uh, politically incorrect. Nobody likes to talk about it. But this is really the crux of the problem, because Population increase is such that there can be no scientific or technological solution to the energy problem. This is a much broader, much bigger problem. It's a societal problem. It's a political problem. It is not just a scientific problem. There cannot be a realistic expectation that scientists can create new technologies that will address the energy problem as long as there is such um, as a non-sustainable increase in population. So, in this slide, you see uh, on the y-axis the Human Development in Index, which is a measure of the quality of life, 
and it's plotted against the annual per capita electricity use in kilowatt hour. So African countries are red triangles, more or less here, except South Africa is here. Uh, Eastern Europe and former USSR are the green triangles, more or less here. Um, developing Asia are the blue uh, squares, mostly here. Central and South America are the white squares, more or less here. And then industrialized countries are mostly beyond this threshold value here. Um, and so we have Canada as an outlier, United States, Australia. What's interesting here is that you see um, that there's a sort of threshold value here. And what this threshold value tells you is that beyond 4,000 kilowatt hour per capita use, if you want to improve your quality of life, you actually need to spend a lot more energy per capita. Right? Now this should not come as a surprise that in fact, if you look below the threshold, as soon as you provide more energy per capita, there is a boost in quality of life. And you see this, it's essentially you're looking at a curve that goes like this. So the more energy per capita there is, the better the quality of life, but beyond a certain threshold, the improvement is marginal. Or in other words, if in Canada we were to give up on all this energy here, we would barely notice the drop in our quality of life. And this is also true of Australia, of course. Now this ties into a couple of issues. Um, first of all, this is one of the rare cases where we fare worse than our southern neighbor, and that's not something I'm proud of, but I have to live with it. Um, the reason why we're far out here in the U.S. and Canada is that we have a lot of abundant and cheap hydroelectric power in North America, and since it's so abundant and cheap and renewable, there's no incentive to use less of it. Also because, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but the grand challenge in any type of renewable energy technology is its storage. Renewable energies are intermittent. They don't provide continuous, uh, a continuous supply of energy. And so if you have a lot of abundant hydroelectric power, that doesn't mean that you can just ship it to somewhere else where uh, they can use it and they have better uses for it. So it takes energy to improve people's standard of living. This is the key message from this slide. And nevertheless, beyond a certain point, there is no more improvement in your standard of living. So that's something to think about, also considering that excessive use of energy has a lot of consequences such as pollution and, and environmental uh, um, issues in its own right. So it takes energy to improve people's standard of living. Here we see the Earth at night from a satellite. This is a collection of images taken from, of course, different time zones and whatnot and patched together into just one picture. And it tells us a lot about um, our planet. First of all, it tells us that at night we waste a lot of energy. It also tells us that the availability of energy is not equal for everybody. Now, as long as you look at Australia, which of course is a huge landmass with a very small population and low population density, it's no surprise that it's mostly dark at night and that there are some light patches along the coast where the urban areas are. And that's pretty much it. Can anybody recognize this squiggly line up here? Yes? It's the Nile River in Egypt. Somebody said Egypt, but it's actually the Nile River. Let's be more precise. And that 
tells you that most of the population in Egypt lives close to the Nile River. Um, what's really striking in my view is how dark all this part of South America is, but of course that's the Amazon forest, so there, it can't be that densely populated. But look at how dark Africa is. That's pretty striking, isn't it? And remember, it takes energy for development. So I want you to imagine, uh, let's say that the equator is roughly here, and let's say that there's a lot of people living between the two tropics uh, and that straddle the equator. If you've been to the equator, you, of course, we all know that there's 12 hours of sunlight, 12 hours of darkness, but if you've been there, you actually know that the sun goes down very fast as somebody had pulled the curtains. But what this picture tells you is that all those people that live in that area, they don't have light at night. That's something we all take for granted, isn't it? I'm not just talking about, say, a TV set. I'm talking about children being able to study at night. And let me emphasize that the fortunate ones can use a kerosene lamp to study at night. Imagine how unhealthy that is, breathing all the fumes from kerosene lamps. Okay? And imagine, on the other hand, if we were to provide energy solutions to that part of the world, how we could boost education and how education, of course, is a motor for development and for peace. So that is something that is very dear and important to me. It's not just addressing the energy problem for us, but for the whole world so that we have collectively a sustainable future. From a historical perspective, this is the amount of energy that primitive humans used, and then the hunter-gatherers. That is the sort of transition time between hunter-gatherer societies and agricultural societies. That is the great divide of human history, in my view. And of course, the energy consumption kept increasing. You can see that it's sort of an exponential trend, with us technological humans using two orders of magnitude, a hundred times more energy as the Stone Age humans. But that applies to us living in developed countries. For everybody living in developing countries, it's more somewhere here, right? We're not all equal in this um, concept of, of how much energy we, we have at our disposal. Now, we all use so much energy, but do we really understand what it means to use energy. Um, the laws of physics, in particular thermodynamics, tell us some things about energy. First of all, the first law of thermodynamics gives us hope because it says energy is not created, but it's not destroyed. The first law of thermodynamics tells you that energy can be transformed from one type to another. So it gives you hope. It means I can take a form of energy and convert it into something else that I can use better. That's fantastic. But there's the second law of thermodynamics, which is not that nice to us because it's all about order and disorder and te tells us that actually some forms of energy are better or more equal than others. For example, you can take electricity and transform almost all of it, 99% into heat, which is something we use. But if you take heat, there is no way you can transform all of it into electricity. And so in terms of converting energy, uh, just as a sort of simple example, let's say that you want to run a TV set using two people <laughs> running on a bike, 
So we use their muscular energy, transform it into electricity, run the TV set, need two people. If you want to run uh, an energy efficient washing machine, then you need 15 people, which tells you that you're better off doing it by hand, pretty much. And if you want a fully loaded Boeing 747 to take off, you will need 1.6 million energy slaves who are not on the plane, they're on the ground, of course. Right? So that tells you about energy equivalence. And so I would like you to think when you turn on the TV, the amount of energy you're using, it's not much. If you want to save energy, it's the big appliances that make a difference, like washing machines, dishwashers, uh, of course, stoves, ovens, refrigerators. Those are the big ones. Of course, you can't really turn off the refrigerator unless you want all your food to go bad. Now, let's go back to fossil fuels. And this is the problem in terms of how depleted they are. See, a few decades ago, we reached a peak in oil discovery. And yet, oil consumption keeps increasing. So that we're somewhere over here. The curves met a few decades ago. And we now find one new barrel of oil for every four we use. And in fact, since it's a finite resource, you dig it out. And when you do, uh, you can look here at the history of Norwegian oil production. You hit a peak at some point, and then it starts decreasing. There's no surprise there because it's a finite resource. Whenever you extract it, it's, uh, eventually it will finish. So you will hit a peak and then it will go down. And this is very interesting because Norway used to be one of the poorest countries in Europe, maybe 60, 70 years ago, until they discovered oil. And then they became the richest. And they're so rich that they're not even part of the European Union because they don't want to share their wealth. Now, the whole concept of peak in uh, oil production, which applies to any resource that extra is extracted, so it could apply to coal or natural gas or whatever, uh, actually has a name. It's called Hubbard Peak. Hubbard was an American geologist who worked in Texas in the 50s, and he made a simple statistical model based on this very reasonable assumption that when you extract something, you'll re reach a peak and then it will go down. And so based on that model, he said there will be a peak in oil production in the United States. And everybody laughed at him. And then in 1973, there was the, big, the first big oil crisis. And he had predicted the first peak, the, the, the peak in the US to, to hit in the early 70s. So he was absolutely right. What this tells us, though, is that there will be a worldwide peak of oil production, but also of coal production or of natural gas production. It applies to anything. We just don't know when it will hit because the suppliers of oil, say the OPEC countries, don't tell us how much they have in their reserves. We just know it will come. It might come in a couple of decades or maybe in 200 years. Even if it were to hit in only 200 years, it will take longer to actually develop and implement a completely new energy infrastructure. And this is the big challenge. We don't know how much time we have until our resources are severely depleted. We don't even know which technologies we need to adopt. I mean, we have some ideas, but there is no uh, sort of silver bullet. And, and so this is, this is part of the problem. Two thirds of the oil reserves are, of course, located in the Gulf countries. Um, the concept of energy, oil, or cheap food, uh, clean energy myth, growing fuel has been uh, sort of frequently 
discussed in major magazines over the last 15 years or so. And then I found on the internet this very cynical picture of a gas tank. And as we approach an empty tank, we are getting into a war zone. In fact, it wouldn't be very surprising if one day the wars in the Gulf area would be referred to as the first energy wars because that's what they were all about in the end. When you want to move to a different energy technology a bit because of what I mentioned, the second and first laws of thermodynamics, how you're constrained in converting one type of energy into another, but also because of economic issues, you should consider the energy return on energy investment. Now this tells you a lot about why oil became such a pervasive uh, kind of boon for the energy sector. That's because a few decades ago, obviously when you dig an oil field, you need to put in some energy, right? It takes energy to extract, right? Well, it would take the equivalent of one barrel of oil to dig an oil field and you would extract 200 barrels. So the return on investment was completely disproportionate. No wonder, you know, we started using it so much and so widely. On top of that, fossil fuels have another advantage. They have an incredible energy density. So in a small volume, you have a lot of energy that you can easily convert it to something else. So now we're trying to extract fuels like, say, ethanol from something else. For example, somebody had the idea of extracting ethanol from corn. Well, first of all, the return on investment is pathetic. It's 1 to 1.3. Secondly, I want you to appreciate that if you're growing corn to use it uh, to extract ethanol, obviously you're not using it to make tortillas if you're in Mexico or pasta if you're in Italy. So you're basically choosing between having an empty stomach or an empty gas tank. That's not a very wise way of looking at the problem. In Brazil, they decided to invest in uh, extracting ethanol from sugarcane the return on investment is 1 to 8, which is not too bad. But again, imagine the large amounts of area that you have to use for growing sugarcane, which means deforestation, which means environmental consequences. So again, if you're using that land for this purpose, you're not using it for regular agriculture. So this does not seem to be a very viable, sustainable solution. In Canada, we have the curse of the Alberta tar sands. When I visited there, they told me I should call them the oil sands. Apparently, it's not politically correct to call them tar sands. I didn't know that. I still call them tar sands. And the return on investment is 1 to 1.5, which is, again, barely acceptable. What's really interesting is that uh, these tar sands became economically viable only a couple of decades ago. Uh, these are capital-intensive ways of extracting oil. So they're only economically viable if the price is high beyond a certain threshold. And now, for example, that the price is so low, the Alberta economy, and by consequences, a lot of the Canadian economy is in a shambles because it's not profitable to extract oil from uh, these sands. <clears throat> so 70 to 75% of the energy we use is made up of natural gas, coal, and oil. There's about 5% nuclear, possibly decreasing, because a lot of people are giving up on it for a number of reasons, mostly because of accidents that happen and so on. There's a couple of percent hydroelectric power, and that 
tends to be significant in certain areas of the world because of the landscape. For example, in North America, if you have rivers and lakes and, and, uh, and so on, it's, it's the geography is amenable to it, but of course, not very uh, uh, even uh, possible in other parts of the world. And then you have biomass and other. Now, you can see that in this graph, there is one potential source of energy which we're all familiar with somehow, which is not even labeled. What is it? Solar. solar. Right, solar. But what is the contribution of solar energy to the whole energy pie in percentage? Hmm? gentleman here says less than five. Well, the estimates vary. Some people say less than one. Some people say one. Some people say about two. Let's, let's take the average value. Let's say 1%. Whatever you take in that range, it's negligible, right? Anything that is actually below 10% is pretty much negligible. And yet, and yet, I want you to appreciate that every hour of every day, the sun sends enough energy to the planet to power the whole world for a year. And we're using it only at 1% level. So there's a huge margin of increase there, margin of improvement. So that's, you know, the, that's the bad news, but it's also the, the good news that it can only get better, hopefully, if we're optimistic, right? However, because of the very nature of solar energy, it cannot actually replace the whole 70 to 75%. That's because some technologies require the energy density of liquid fuels. Like, I know they've demonstrated that small aircraft can fly limited distances on solar power, but, you know, essentially you need the energy density of liquid fuels for the kind of intercontinental travel that we've become used to, which is particularly relevant if you live in Australia and wherever you leave the country, you need to fly long haul. And now let's talk about this politically incorrect issue. World population increases at a rate of 200,000 people per day, which means 70 million per year, which also means that in 15 years you have an extra billion people on the planet. Why is this relevant? Okay, first of all, this was not always the case, of course. For many hundreds, even thousands of years, world population was practically constant, increasing very, very slowly until the 1800s. That's the era we refer to as the Industrial Revolution. Now, which fuel powered the Industrial Revolution? Coal. Steam is not a fuel, it's a byproduct of burning coal. And after that, we started using, of course, also natural gas and oil, and that prompted this exponential increase in population due to a number of other factors. The availability of energy actually had positive consequences in, of course, healthcare and medicine and so on. So uh, people living in developed countries now have much longer lives than they did 200 years ago and so on. Uh, but pretty much there's this exponential growth in population and these amazing fossil fuels, amazing in every possible way, positive and negative, have created our way of living that we're used to, that we take for granted. I mean, the kind of lighting in this room and the display technologies that make this possible and the vehicles that took us here today or the flights that took me into this country, all of that is something we take for granted, which was not 
possible even a hundred years ago, say, right? Now, if you have some training in mathematics, you will know, you will appreciate that exponential growth that feeds into finite resources is not sustainable. But, of course, I cannot take for granted that all of you have sufficient knowledge of mathematics to appreciate this concept. So I want to rephrase this in a way that I think everybody can understand. We're doing something which is not sustainable. Why? Because we are relying on extracting a finite resource and since the population increases exponentially, the more people we have, the more we want of this resource, right? Everybody wants to have energy because it takes energy to have a better quality of life, if you recall what I said earlier, right? Well, the resource is finite, so at some point it will be depleted. It's not going to happen today, and it's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen. So the day that fossil fuels are depleted, we either have a replacement for that 75%, or we have to go back to the population level before fossil fuels, because that's what the planet can sustain without them. Now we have an extra margin of 25% that we developed in the last 200 years. So we have that 5% nuclear, 2% hydro, maybe 1% solar, and biomass another. So maybe it's that population level plus, say, 25% of it. But that is what the planet can sustain without fossil fuels. And this is the reason why there is no scientific or technological solution to this challenge. As long as population keeps increasing exponentially, there is nothing scientists can do to feed enough energy to humans for them to be happy. This is the big challenge. Now let's look historically at what happened in sort of similar cases. Somebody introduced reindeer on St. Paul Island off the coast of Alaska in 1910. Their energy was the grassland and there are no predators for reindeer on that island. So they multiplied and reached a peak in population and then they overgrazed, which means they ate the grass faster than it would regrow. And boom, within 10 years they were extinct. Now let's look at Easter Island. You may know that Easter Island is one of the three vertices of the Polynesian Triangle. New Zealand, Hawaii, Easter Island. It's really in the middle of nowhere. It belongs to Chile and it's a five-hour flight to Santiago de Chile, the capital. Some Polynesian people moved there, maybe hundreds or thousands of years ago, probably thousands, and they populated the island. Their energy were the palm trees. Um, no predators for humans on that island until Europeans brought um, some germs that the locals were not accustomed to, and that decimated the population. But aside from that, how did they use the palm trees as a source of energy? Well, obviously they burned it you know, to make fire and whatnot, but they actually used palm trees to make rafts and go fishing because they quickly depleted uh, the fish and seashell that were close to the coast and so then they had to go and fish further away from the island and so they needed these rafts to go fishing. And then at some point they started building those big statues that the island is famous for, the moai, the ones with the big nose. And to transport them around the island they cut down palm trees so that they could sort of roll the statues on the palm trees. And at some point, believe it or not, they cut down all the palm trees. So they cut down their very source of energy and livelihood. And so after a, an exponential increase in population, boom, 
they were almost extinct. In the late 19th century, the lowest population on Easter Island was 111 people. There is, in fact, an ancient insult on Easter Island which says, your mother's flesh hangs between my teeth. In other words, when there was no more food available, they became cannibals. <clears throat> now here you see world population as a function of time. Uh, it's similar to the curve I showed in the previous slide. Um, and this part of the curve, of course, bears similarity to the first part of these two curves. The question is, what's going to happen next to us? We know that exponential increase in population cannot last forever. I'm not hoping for a catastrophe like in these two cases, but what's actually going to happen depends on us, on the choices we make in the near future, right? Nobody else can decide it for us. In the sort of best case scenario, we stop growing exponentially and we level off, we saturate. So we, we stop growing at some point, maybe eight, nine billion, I don't know. But even if we do level off and saturate, we still eventually have to find a replacement for that 75% of fossil fuels. There is no way around that. I want you to appreciate that if there are no fossil fuels, you go to the supermarket and the shelves are empty because there was no truck, train, or plane that brought the food there. That's what it means, right? Not sustainable. It means our way of living is simply not possible. So our energy fossil fuels, and similar to these cases, it's something that can easily be depleted, at least on the time scale that, is, that matters to us. Fossil fuels derive from decomposition of vegetation from solar radiation that happened over hundreds of millions of years, and we're depleting them over hundreds of years. Okay? So this, there is no way that they can renew in a time scale that matters to us. And this is yours truly when I actually visited Easter Island a couple of years ago uh, next to a lineup of Moai. That was one of the trips on my bucket list, and so I managed to do it. I'm very happy about it. Okay, so last year I was very fortunate to attend a two-day training program uh, which is organized by former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, and it's called the Climate Reality Project. So everything that I told you so far is about the energy challenge. Now let's look at what happens to the Earth's environment due to the choices we've made, the, the fossil fuels we've been using. So this is the Earth, this is the atmosphere, and basically the Sun sends us all this energy, all this radiation that I told you about in one hour, enough energy to power the planet for a year. What happens? That a lot of it is absorbed by, uh, by the planet, of course, and then part of it is radiated back into space, and part of it, when it's radiated, it bounces again off the atmosphere and comes back to the planet. The problem, of course, is that as we introduce more CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere, well, that traps more and more radiation into uh, the atmosphere, and so a lot more energy is absorbed by the planet. And that has a lot of consequences on the hydrological cycle and therefore on climate change, extreme events and whatnot. Now, what, what processes lead to increase in CO2 in the atmosphere? Well, believe it or not, pretty much anything we do. So, landfills, land transportation, fertilization, forest burning, 
I'm told this happens a lot in Australia. Crop burning, oil production, air transport, coal plants, again, coal mining, uh, big in Australia. Thawing permafrost is a consequence of that, of course, industrial processes, industrial agriculture. Anything that we do in, the, in our modern way of living leads to an increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. <clears throat> now here, unfortunately, the, the years are in white, so you won't be able to see it, but pretty much uh, you can imagine there's a decade every little bit here in this graph. And what this tells is that uh, the million of metric tons of carbon uh, emitted from fossil fuels has been increasing exponentially in the last say about 150 years. So that goes hand in hand with the exponential increase in population. It's not a surprise, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. The more people there are, the more processes there are, the more we emit CO2 into the atmosphere. Now let's look at how this has caused a shift in the temperatures on the planet. So let looks, let's look at summer temperatures. This is 1951 to 80. So here you have the average. This is warmer and this is cooler than average. 81 to 91, okay, there's already a shift. 91 to 2000, there's another shift. 2001 to 2011, there's another shift. What does this mean? Well, concretely, and you see that there's an extremely hot part of the curve, which is a lot more significant than in previous decades, Extreme temperature events used to cover 0.1% of the surface of the Earth. Now they are at 10%. That's two orders of magnitude more, 100 times more. Now in this simulation, you see essentially temperature fluctuations or, or changes in average temperature on the planet, geographically distributed, so that zero is roughly white, the bluish means minus one and minus two, and the yellow to red means plus one to plus two. And uh, so freakishly enough, if you look at what happened in the last couple of decades, the average temperature has consistently increased one to two degrees across the planet. Why should this worry us? You know what? We're humans. And a change of temperature in one or two degrees something we can hardly feel. We can't really detect it unless we have a thermometer. We won't really notice the difference. But it turns out, <clears throat> well, okay, let me take a break here. April 2015 was the 362nd consecutive month with a global temperature above the average of the last century. 2014 was the 38th consecutive year with a global temperature above the 20th century average. And in fact, these slides uh, predate October 2015, which was the warmest month on record for the whole planet worldwide um, for, in, in its history. So what I was mentioning is we can't really feel the difference of one to two degrees, but the hydrological cycle can. This is the cycle by which, uh, because of the average temperature on the surface of the Earth, water evaporates and then precipitates into rain and then returns to the sea and it starts over again. And because of that small change in temperature, one to two degrees, we now face a lot of extreme events with a much higher frequency than we used to. So here you see an example of uh, about three million people being affected by floods in China just a couple years ago. But also, not just floods, there's also drought. 
Uh, red is severely dry, brown is extremely dry, and here you see this is supposed to be a lake in the Jiangxi province just about five years ago. A lake. Now in terms of pollution, let's see something else related to China. This is Beijing skyline on a clear day. I want you to look at this building here. And on February 27, 2013, well, the visibility was not quite as good. Uh, this is Adelaide Hills in South Australia. So, uh, of course, I figure you guys are familiar with extreme events and forest burning uh, in the last few years. This is just a little over a year ago. And this is a koala that is uh, being given water because he's severely dehydrated. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but just in the last 40 years, we've lost more than half of the animals on the planet. Did you know that? Does that scare you? Because it certainly scares me. Right? Imagine how much damage we've done to the planet just in the last half century for it to have lost more than half its animals. So this is our beautiful planet, and its destiny, believe it or not, is in our hands. Nobody else's. The damage we're doing is entirely coming from us. We do have solutions at hand, so I don't want you to walk out of here in despair, thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do now? There are many solutions that we can work on. We haven't come up with a clear picture of exactly what we need to do, but at least we know that there's many things we can do, okay? And so we might as well start doing them right away. Of course, solar energy is a big one because, recall, the, the sun sends us so much energy and we're only using 1% in the whole pie, so we can do much better than that. There's other renewable technologies like hydroelectric, which I mentioned, uh, tidal power, wind power. There's really a lot we can do. We can save energy. We can, do a, we can make a lot of choices that will impact our ability to survive long-term on this planet. Okay? So this is something we need to start thinking. Not now, not today, pretty much yesterday. Now, let's say that we decide to adopt a new technology or several new technologies, knowing that we do it, need to do it really fast. Is it even possible? Right? I mean, it's a big challenge. It's not something, hey, okay, let's do it. Okay, yeah, sure, why not? No, it's much harder than that. So is there a precedent in human history for such a rapid ad adoption of a new technology? Is there? What is it? That is correct. Mobile phones. So, in 1980, AT&T commissioned a study to forecast cell phone use by the year 2000. The projection was 900,000 users. Was this projection correct? No. In the year 2000, there were actually 109 million users. So this gives us hope, right? Why did this happen? <clears throat> Turns out that now there are almost as many cell phone connections as there are humans on the planet, believe it or not. So why did this happen? Why were they not just wrong, but completely wrong? Well. 
The cost dropped sharply because the quality improved dramatically. Purchasing decisions were made by individuals, not utilities. Individuals is us. We make the choices, to a certain extent anyway. Developing countries without landline grids leapfrog old technology. So in Africa, it's not at all uncommon for people to have mobile phones. Landlines are pretty rare. <clears throat> so finishing up the part that I borrowed from uh, Vice President, former Vice President Al Gore, who wants us to spread the message, what can you do? Well, I want you to walk out of this lecture thinking about what you can do and what you want to do so that we can all fare better on this planet. Recall that there are a lot of people who are in denial about climate change and global warming. Don't let denial go unchallenged. Win the conversation. Use social and traditional media to get the word out. And call TV and radio stations. Write to newspapers and magazines. If you want, you can join the Climate Reality Project. There are training courses all over the world. I don't know if it has come to Australia yet, but it will if it hasn't. Uh, I attended one in Toronto, but it's regularly given across the planet uh, several times around the year. Of course, we should also think of grassroots movements to influence political decisions, because ultimately these are political uh, and societal issues, and it's our politicians who should steer uh, into a new direction, into a sustainable kind of future. It's not going to happen just by us making different decisions. There has to be a political will behind it. Now, why do I give these presentations? Well, um, quoting these colleagues here, who wrote a beautiful essay on the future of energy supply, scientists have the moral duty to inform the general public of the urgency and complexity of the energy problem. So I think it's my moral duty to share this with as many people as possible, because when you want to solve a problem, first of all, you need to be aware that there is a problem, and I wager that most of you were maybe vaguely aware that there's something wrong out there, but probably didn't realize how bad it is, right? Ten years ago, I didn't know how bad it is, and it's only gotten worse. Of course, the Earth is in our hands, and quoting this Italian chemist, Wow, you know, this guy was way ahead of his time. If our black and nervous civilization based on coal, in those days, a hundred years ago, it was based on coal, is followed by a quieter civilization based on solar energy, that will not hinder progress in human happiness. He was way ahead of his time, this guy. Now, I also am a scientist from a uh, sort of privileged standpoint. I consider myself to be privileged to be a scientist because it's, the most exciting job in the world for me to make discoveries and to share them with the community. And I happen to work in an area of science which is called nanotechnology, which means that now we have the ability to operate at the scale of individual atoms and molecules. Those are very small, huh? Not easy to do, but lots of fun. And in fact, we've reached the era of advanced materials by design. If you consider the elements of the periodic table as building blocks like Lego pieces, we can now pretty much design a material system by positioning those building blocks in special places in the whole system's architecture so that the final material product will have very specific properties. And so this is beginning to lead to many exciting applications uh, that are changing the world we live in slowly but surely. 
Now, going back though to the energy challenge, as I mentioned, yes, we can do a lot with science and technology. We can use nanotechnology and design you know, new solar cells that are more efficient and this and that. But recall the whole problem of population increase and all the other political problems. For example, why are fossil fuels subsidized so much? Why do we have to line the pockets of you know, oil producers or those who extract coal? Why should we do it? I mean, they're subsidized by our governments, which means that those subsidies come from our taxes. And then producers of oil and coal, etc., they pollute the planet, and that has a bad effect on our health, and it leads to extreme weather events and whatnot. Why are we doing this? Why? It's really a societal and political problem, right? We should get our politicians to tax fossil fuels instead of subsidizing them, and the revenue from those taxes should go into subsidies for solar energy. More research and development into solar energy to drop the cost and have better efficiency and stability. That's what we should be doing. Anyway, since it's a societal and political problem, I decided to approach it differently and not just do my science in my ivory tower. I approached UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. UNESCO has a program called UNESCO Chairs. These chairs are essentially networks that promote international inter-university cooperation and networking uh, to enhance institutional capacities. And this is done through knowledge sharing and capacity building and collaboration. The idea is that you have higher education and research institutions which will pool resources to address pressing challenges and contribute to societal development. The chairs are supposed to act as think tanks and bridge builders between academia, local community res re communities, research and policy making. So we want to influence policy making. We want to have an influence and be heard at the political level. The idea is to uh, create new research and te teaching initiatives, inform on policy decisions, um, enrich university programs and promote cultural diversity. And the chairs are designed to strengthen north-south and south-south cooperation. Well, funnily enough, in the UNESCO definition, north means developed or rich, and south means developing or poor. So for once, Australia would count as north, and for example, China would count as south. There's over 850 UNESCO chairs in 134 countries. In Canada, we have 20, including the one that I set up. How was I inspired? Well, there are some similar sort of projects that have come up in the last half century. The most notable one, though, is the International Center for Theoretical Physics, which is a Category 1 UNESCO Institute in Trieste, Italy. That's the town I grew up with and grew up in when I was an adolescent. And this is essentially uh, a center that shares knowledge in theoretical physics and trains students and scientists from developing countries. I thought it was a very interesting model, except that, you know, as much as doing research and teaching in theoretical physics is very sort of low cost, the added value and impact in a developing country where there's no resources and no infrastructure is zero. So I thought, let's do something similar in an area that has potential for development, which is renewable energies. I was also inspired by my high school experience. 
I was very fortunate to attend one of the United World Colleges. There's a network of international schools across the globe. There's one in Italy, the one I attended. UWC makes education a force to unite people, nations and cultures for peace and a sustainable future. You see how high school experiences can really impact you so that 25 years down the road, I'm still inspired by the values that I learned back then. Uh, the late Nelson Mandela was our honorary president and certainly a great inspirational figure for us. So what do we want to do with, with the UNESCO chair? Our overarching objective is to obtain access to sustainable energy for all. This is a quote from the United Nations. You will recognize it from the Millennium Development Goals. The idea is we want to do research built on sharing knowledge in emerging energy technologies. So we want to have a global impact. And I say we because it's not just me. This is a really a big effort that involves partners in many developing countries. Here I list the initial 10, but we have additional ones in Brazil and Chile and Ethiopia and so on. And how do we want to do it? Well, we host students and uh, faculty from visiting countries. We give them access to our equipment so they can learn uh, new concepts, new technologies, bring back the knowledge they learn with us. We organize international workshops in schools, and we also train uh, PhD students from developing countries. We do it in collaboration with our partners so that they have a home to go back to once they finish their training. And so we try to, to slowly scale up this effort and train more and more people who have the knowledge and the intellectual capacity to go back to their country and implement new solutions or at least teach them to a wider uh, spectrum of people. So what kind of technologies do we work on? And I won't, for, for the academics in the audience, um, I won't really go into detail in the specifics of what we do. Uh, so I, uh, if you are interested, we can discuss them uh, separately. But basically, we've worked on some nanoscale materials, metal catalysts for, say, gas-to-liquid conversion, for example. Uh, we've worked a lot on solar cells. This is a solar spectrum. So you see this is the profile, the intensity profile of radiation from the sun as a function of the wavelength. And uh, what we know is that there is no material that can actually absorb and transform the whole solar spectrum. Any material can only absorb and potentially transform a portion of it, usually a small portion. And that's why efficiencies of solar cells are pretty low. Even the theoretical maximum efficiency is never 100% because of a number of considerations. But a commercial solar panel is around 18 to 20%. That means that only a fraction of that spectrum can actually be used for our purposes. Now, recall this picture about the Earth at night from a satellite and how unequal the distribution of energy is across the Earth. Well, as much as it's dismal to look at that picture, we can also think of a map of possibilities because the same regions that are dark at night are the ones that have most sunshine during the day. And that's where solar energy can have a real impact. Of course, we have to think about off-grid solutions because, of course, there is no grid in a lot of those regions, right? It's not like, uh, you know, villages don't, ha they're not hooked up to an electrical grid. Right? So you need off-grid local solutions. This means looking at low-cost technologies. So here, this is an example of a technology that I think has a lot of potential for developing countries and that we're also working on. 
originally invented by Michael Gretzel. These are called disensitized solar cells. And these are solar cells that essentially mimic the photosynthesis reaction in plants. You may be aware that this is a process that is used by plants to convert radiation from the sun into chemical energy, which is stored and later used by the plant. And so this is the, the concept that he developed. The main advantage of it is its low cost. And the big challenges are at the efficiency, which is very low, not even like maybe 10% in a commercial panel. And uh, the stability also is not too good, so that these panels might only last a few years, which means they're not going to be deployed in a country like Australia because nobody wants to you know, invest in solar panels and then have to change them in a couple of years. We want them to last 20 years. But if that's your alternative to no energy in, in a region where there is no grid and there's nothing else, then that can actually be a viable solution to kickstart uh, the whole uh, process of, of uh, improving the energy infrastructure. This is um, a very important part of the energy challenge, energy saving. Recall that we should save as much energy as possible while we try to transition to new paradigms. This is a brief history of lighting in which you see the efficiency of the luminous devices as a function of time. So originally, we all did the same stupid thing, which was to burn oil, gas, or kerosene and use fire as a source of illumination. I say stupid because recall the fumes are not very healthy. We then moved to the incandescence filament, which a lot of us grew up with, and it's becoming more and more rare, thankfully, because it actually pollutes a lot, believe it or not. And we're now in the era of solid-state lighting. And these are LEDs. We have a lot of traffic lights now made of LEDs. And if you're not aware, you might be interested in knowing that each one of, of them saves $1,200 worth of electricity every year. And they also reduce CO2 emissions quite drastically. So I don't know about the future, but this is certainly the technology of the present. These LEDs are pretty expensive, but if you consider that they last a very long time and they really save a lot of energy in converting into light, uh, it's an investment I recommend to make in households. This is where individuals can make decisions. I've started replacing all the light bulbs in my house with LEDs and they have much better lighting and they last much, much longer. In fact, the Nobel Prize in Physics was given in 2014 to the three Japanese scientists who invented the high-efficiency blue light-emitting diode. And that was a very important invention because the blue color was the missing color to make white light. When we look at the sun, it appears sort of whitish, yellowish. So if you want a, a sort of device that mimics sunlight, you need something that emits white, but that's only obtained through a combination of colors, and nobody had been able to, uh, to make a, a high-efficiency blue uh, emission. Now, the grand challenge, though, of all renewable energy technologies is storage, recall, because renewable energies are intermittent. What does this mean? They don't give power continuously. For example, take solar. Well, at night, there's zero, right? There's nothing. But even during the day, as soon as a cloud passes overhead, your power drops to 10 or 20 percent. So you need to store excess energy for the times when there is no availability. And that is something we haven't learned to do very efficiently. Our energy storage cap capabilities are improving, but they're not quite there yet. Even if you think, hey, you know, let's make electrical vehicles, yeah, sure, that's 
probably going to be a new technology that is going to, you know, up and coming, it's going to be pervasive. But look at the challenge here. Right now, a charge of an electrical vehicle allows you to drive less than 100 miles, about 160 kilometers. The target for this storage device to be competitive with current technologies, gas tanks, is at least 300 miles per charge. Okay, that's about 500 kilometers. And so we basically need to improve our energy density capability and efficiency by a factor of 10 if we want to attain that goal. And that's not easy. Factor of 10 is, is you know, not that easy. It's doable. We will get there, but it's not easy. Of course, there's also opportunities when we think about redesigning our infrastructure. So this is a very modern building. I, I don't know the specs of it, but I would guess it was done with, with some smart thinking in terms of, uh, of the materials that it's made of. But basically, you have to imagine that the majority of buildings we've been living in in the last few decades they were made of materials that have very poor thermal insulation properties, which means that you know if you're in Canada, you heat during the winter, a lot of the heat is dissipated into the environment. If you're in, in Australia, you want to cool during the summer, well, a lot of you know cooling, shall we say something that's not scientifically correct, but for practical purposes, you lose a lot of your cooling capability because your walls don't quite uh, insulate thermally from the environment. And this, why? Well, because in those days when these buildings were built, energy for cooling and, cheap and, and heating was cheap. And it was abundant. This is not the case anymore, so now we have to rethink our uh, infrastructure because cooling and heating is a major part of the energy budget of a building. And so there's huge opportunities in energy saving there, and there are fantastic material solutions like this air gel material, which is such that you can place your hand on top and there's a flame on the bottom and you're, you don't get, uh, you, you don't burn your fingers, right? So there's huge opportunities uh, from a technological point of view for building materials. How many of you have read novels by Jules Verne? For example, Around the World in 80 Days or Going to the Moon and stuff like that. How many of you have read The Mysterious Island? Very few. Well, it turns out that Jules Verne, besides predicting man on the moon, he also predicted in the mysterious island that water will one day be employed as fuel, hydrogen and oxygen, which constituted, used singly or together, will furnish an inexhaustible source of heat and light of an intensity of which coal is not capable. Water will be the coal of the future. And here you see the designs of a hydrogen car, and here you have a hydrogen fuel cell bus in Iceland. So hydrogen is not, it's, again, it's not one of those technologies. We don't have a technology that will solve all the problems. If it does solve something, it will take up a niche and address a certain percentage of that 75% we need to make up for. But it is something that we need to consider. Now, the word crisis, would you say that it has a negative connotation in English? Yeah? And after what you've heard today, would you say that we're facing an energy crisis? Yeah? 
Well, it turns out that in the original Greek meaning of this word, because it comes from ancient Greek, the word crisis means choice or divergence of paths. So one day I asked a Chinese colleague, I asked him, how do you say or write crisis in Chinese? So he produced this, these two characters, a composite character. He also pronounced it, but I'm not going to try to do that. And so this is the character for crisis in Chinese. And I asked, why, why does it take two characters? And he said, well, because this part here means danger, and this part here means opportunity. So funnily enough, also in Chinese, the concept of crisis really means choice, but it has a very specific uh, connotation of choosing between danger or opportunity. And after what I've told you today, I hope you agree with me that we are on a path of non-sustainability, and if we continue on that path, we are in grave danger. But at the same time, we have the opportunity of changing things. We have many solutions at our disposal, and many more will come, but we need to make a conscious decision right now to make a change for the sustainable future of humanity and all living species on this planet. So, I owe a debt of gratitude, of course, as I mentioned, to the Selby Fellowship that brought me here, as well as to a number of funding sources from uh, the federal government of Canada and the provincial government of Quebec and a number of other entities that generous, generously support us. You see that we collaborate widely across the world in many areas of nanotechnology and uh, the folks underlined are current and former students who actually do all the work in the lab and deserve all the credit for the research we do. I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal, but I would encourage you to visit us. If you do visit us, you should be aware that we only have two seasons. The winter, which is still now, it's a very long winter, and the construction season. Now, during the construction season, it is actually warm enough that we can have a water fight in the backyard, so colleagues and students bring their children, and we have a, uh, a lot of fun. So if you visit us, uh, during the construction season, you'll be invited to join the water fight. Of course, if you were to visit us right now during the winter, it's much more likely to be a snow fight. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Federico. That was an amazing lecture. A lot of uh, food for thought here, especially for a young audience here. This is a challenge. For all of us, and um, hopefully we can meet it with the science that we're trying to address uh, in this Institute for Nanotechnology. So the floor is now open for questions. I remind you to wait for the microphone, so if you would like to ask a question, just raise your hand and Ira will help us. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. It's excellent. Um, I'm sort of wondering so much on technology. I was in the solar industry, so I'm you know, sort of a big fan of everything you're, you're talking about here. Have you given up on the other variable, which is the population side, because you sort of opened by saying you'll never catch up with that if that continues? And so what sort of, where does science meet with the political, socio side of things to address that? 
Thank you for asking that question. Um, so, wait, it's going to be faster if I do this. Um, that is precisely, or at least in good deal, uh, the, one of the big reasons uh, why uh, I can't find it. Oh, okay, let's go back here. Um, so this is, I guess, the graph of population growth. Okay, so you live in Australia, I guess, right? And would you say that the population is growing here? Slowly. Very slowly. Hardly. The average household has not more than two kids, right? Same in Canada, same in the United States, same in Europe. It's not the developed countries that contribute mostly to population growth. It's actually the developing countries. And that's why one of the reasons why I set up the UNESCO chair, because access to energy leads to development, leads to better quality of life, leads to education. It means women can join the workforce, families become smaller, and that helps to level off the population. Recall that I said our only hope, and I said this here, is for this curve to saturate and become what is called the logistics curve, which is S-shaped. But it's not in rich countries that you can actually do something for population growth. We're already roughly constant, right? There are more questions. Yes, thanks for a very nice lecture. Um, how do you see the interplay of nuclear and solar and wind as non-carbon uh, energy sources? Because there was not a lot of talk about nuclear and there are obviously fuel cycles which are not so good like the ones we're using now and there are other ones which are based on thorium which give rise to a different kind of uh, fuel cycle which might be more attractive for energy because we don't want to make weapons grade plutonium. Yeah, uh, that's a, also a very good question. So, um, nuclear energy, of course, whether whichever fissile material you use, it still draws on a finite resource, so it cannot be a long-term solution. However, um, it can help bridge towards other renewable long-term solutions, so I wouldn't be opposed to it, let's say. There are a lot of people who are completely opposed to it on sort of philosophical or whatever grounds, of course, thorium is a much better candidate because, as you mentioned, it doesn't lead to weapon-grade kind of materials, so that's fine. Uh, and nuclear actually, as you, you sort of hinted, has a great advantage that is it's more or less a carbon-neutral technology. It doesn't really emit CO2. Of course, in building the nuclear plants and extracting, eh, well, there will be CO2 emissions, but as I mentioned, there's CO2 emissions, whatever we do. So even if we build a solar plant, that will cause CO2 emissions. There is no way around that. So yes, I would think that we should scale up our use of nuclear technologies as a sort of medium-term way to partially address or replace that 75% hurdle because 75% is so huge that we can't afford to give up on anything that can help, pretty much. Hello. Um, I just want to note, first of all, that um, in the last uh, two, three years, um, oil company in the Amazons have been spilling a lot of oil and there have been uh, devastating damage for life generally. Um, and the oil companies have been, uh, you know, they have to pay for it, but it's just money for them, although other life have been 
um, affected by it. Um, now, part of my question is that there being other um, energy sources like Nikola Tesla uh, over a hundred years ago had a good idea of how to uh, make energy from something that is um, we have around us and a lot of um, other um, fiction stories have a right idea of um, how to make energy and I was thinking is it possible to I don't know use or think different ways outside of that box of nuclear hydro whatever we have um. Well, in principle, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm not aware of some fantastic idea out there that hasn't really been explored in one way or another. Uh, there is a certain potential for what is called nuclear fusion instead of fission, which means you take elements of the periodic table and you sort of push them together with, with so much energy that they fuse into one another and make elements with higher weight. That's what happens in a star like the sun, and that tends to emit a huge amount of energy. So if we were able to develop that, that could potentially be an inexhaustible source of energy because it would be like having our own small sun here on the planet. Um, of course, first of all, we need to be able to do it, and secondly, we need to be able to control the reaction. But, you know... Physicists have been working on this problem for I don't know how many decades and 30 years ago they said yes we will have nuclear fusion in 30 years and now they say it will take 40 years and so I'm not really holding my breath about it but hey you know I've been proven to be wrong so maybe one day we will have nuclear fusion and it will address a lot of our energy needs. Recall that it still won't address everything because as I mentioned you can't fly a plane on anything except well a big plane, long haul, on anything except liquid fuels, right? So that, that, that whole 75% we need to replace, there's nothing right now that is credible to replace in everything we do. So even if we had something like that, if we still wanted to fly long distances on jumbo jets, we'd need to have a much better storage technology so that we could use that ele electrical power to fly a plane. Right now, not possible. Um, thank you, Professor Nitto and Federico. Um, I'm just wondering, I personally see that the um, population increase um, is limited by the global food supply, and that's a limiting factor that will stop us, our population increase. And I was wondering, if we do somehow get an unlimited source of energy, is it possible to use that energy in some way that we can draw that in nutrients for um, like human living? Is that a possibility that you see? Okay, so thanks for asking this question. Uh, it's very interesting because all the arguments I made for energy vis-a-vis -vis the exponential increase in population can be made in relation to food. So as much as there is not going to be enough energy for a growing population, there is also not going to be enough Food. This is fairly well established. But I want you to appreciate anyway that food is just a primary source of energy for us, right? As I mentioned, when you grow corn so that you can extract ethanol, you're choosing between, you know, empty stomach or empty tank, right? But ultimately, food is really ener basic energy for humans. 
you alluded to a sort of, I don't remember the word you used, the adjective you used, um, indeterminate or infinite source of energy or something like that. That is basically not possible. Um, even, say, uh, you know, if we were develop, to develop nuclear fusion, whichever technology we use, let's face it, it requires raw materials. I mean, you're always converting one form of energy into another, right? Recall. And when you're converting one form of energy into another, you need some materials, some raw materials to do that. And any raw material exists in finite amounts on the planet. We're back to that problem. There might be a lot more, say, maybe silicon than fossil fuels, but still the amount, the supply of silicon is going to be limited. It might last much longer, right? Maybe on timescales that do not concern us because it's going to be maybe thousands or tens of thousands of years. I have no idea, actually. I've never looked into it. But anyway, yes, uh, agriculture relies increasingly on um, other forms of energy. So if we want to boost agriculture, certainly we will need more energy. We will need to become more efficient in our use of energy for agriculture. And then there's a lot of technologies that are up and coming. Uh, for example, there are some uh, technologies in which they essentially grow food, like I've become aware of a technology like tissue engineering type, where they actually grow a steak in the lab. I'm not sure how it tastes, and I haven't tried it, but uh, that could be uh, an avenue to explore that might at least in part address the shortage of food that uh, certainly is to be expected, uh, possibly on the same time scale or even shorter time scales than, than the depletion of fossil fuels. Okay, one very last question from this corner. Thank you. I know that you've kind of given us a broad overview of everything to do with sustainability and energy consumption, but I think everyone might not to know what specifically you do with nanotechnology because you kind of touched on that a little bit. I'd like to know a little bit more if you can. All right, well, this here is a dye-sensitized solar cell. You recall that the big challenge here is the stability and the other one is the efficiency. What we did is we introduced multi-wall carbon nanotubes which are essentially tiny tubes made of carbon. So essentially a few sheets of carbon rolled up into tubes that are a few nanometers in length and that can be micrometers, uh, sorry, mi uh, nanometers in diameter and micrometers in length. And it turns out that introducing these carbon nanotubes uh, increases a lot the stability of the solar cell. So here what you find is we're plotting the current density against the voltage of the cell. So if you take a sort of control device uh, with the standard material, then this is the operation on day one, the filled squares. And after six days of almost continuous operations, you see that the curve drops. Now, if you're wondering what the curve means, well, the current density times the voltage gives you the power density output of the device. So if that curve drops, it means your power density has dropped. Now here we have the device in which we introduce the, the multi-wall carbon nanotubes, and this is day one of operation, and after six days of almost continuous operation, there is still a drop, but it's much smaller. And admittedly, we don't exactly understand what's going on, why the carbon nanotubes uh, seem to improve the stability. Uh, we imagine that it 
we have some hypotheses. We imagine it's related to the exceptional electronic, thermal, and mechanical properties of these materials. Uh, part of the problem in this, uh, in this device is the dye molecule, which of course is an organic molecule that is going to be exposed to solar radiation and that will lead it to degrade eventually, just like you know we get skin burns when we are exposed to the sun a lot. And so the, we, we think the carbon nanotubes might be protecting the dye, for example, at least in part. That was one hypothesis. Um, here is where I don't like to admit it, but we don't exactly understand the reason why this works. Uh, how many of you know the story of the, the guy who visits three labs in the university, the physics lab, the electrical engineering lab, and the engineering physics lab? So this guy visits three labs, and first he goes to the physics lab, and the physicist is very happy. His experiment doesn't work, but he understands why it doesn't work, so he's happy. Then he goes to the electrical engineering lab, and the electrical engineer is also very happy. His experiment works. He doesn't know why, but it works. And then he goes to the engineering physics lab, and the guy is very unhappy because his experiment doesn't work, and he doesn't know why. <laughs> so at least it works. We don't know why, but it works. Although I'm a physicist, I'm not an electrical engineer, believe it or not. So that's one example. Um, here there's another example of a very exotic material that we work on, which is uh, sort of ferroelectric multiferroic. So I realize that a lot of people here will not understand what I'm talking about because it's a little bit too detailed. But anyway, let's take a conventional semiconductor, say silicon, which is used for a solar cell. Well, you need to create uh, an excess of negative charges in part of this material, an excess of positive charges in another part, and there will be an interface where you have a space charge region due to the plus and minus, where there will be an electrical field. So what happens is that this material absorbs a photon, the photon will, the, the material is a semiconductor, so it has a band gap in which there are no uh, possible energy levels for electrons to live. And so the photon is absorbed and it creates an excited state in this band gap. This excited state is very short-lived, very, very short, like 100 picoseconds, faster than, than you can even think. And it splits into two charges, electron and hole, so one negative, one positive. And that electrical field will transport the charges towards electrodes and you measure current. So that's how a conventional semiconductor in solar energy works. What we're working on is a material which is ferroelectric, which means that essentially when you apply an electrical field, uh, there are dipoles in the material that orient in the field. And so when you turn off the field, there is a remnant polarization, a remnant electrical field in the material. So this means that if you sandwich your ferroelectric between two electrodes, well, it's, uh, the ferroelectric will have a band gap. It can absorb a photon. It can split into electron hole pairs, and this electrical field, the intrinsic polarization, drives it towards electrodes. The problem, though, is that uh, these ferroelectrics absorb in the wrong region of the solar spectrum so that they don't absorb a whole lot of photons, and they're very insulating, so they don't transport a lot of charges. And what we found is that there are some, there is a subclass of ferroelectrics which are multiferroic. They're both ferroelectric and magnetic. This is getting really too technical here. But anyway, these ones have the opportunity of transforming more photons and carrying more electrons. And so we've developed this concept with 
these films made of bismuth iron chromium oxide and essentially what we found is uh, this, this is a record efficiency for this class of materials which is 8.1 percent so it's, it's far from anything that can be commercialized but it's something that we're further uh, developing also because in principle this material can be grown on silicon so instead of competing with silicon it could actually enhance it these are a couple of examples of things we do Okay, I'm going to have to close the questions uh, now. The Australian Institute for Nanoscale Science and Technology would like to invite you to a cocktail reception just outside the lecture theatre here. But before we go, please join me in thanking Professor Rosé again.